listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Mitchell Hashimoto. He's best known as the co-founder of HashiCorp, but today we're talking about a side project of his, a high-performance terminal emulator that he wrote using Zig and Swift, and which has become his daily driver terminal. We also go on some tangents about open source, Zig and Rust comparisons, and learning through side projects, among other topics. And now, building a terminal in Zig and Swift. All right, Mitchell, thanks for joining me. Hello. So you tweeted about this project that you were working on, which caught my eye. It's it's really cool. So you basically made a terminal emulator in combination of Zig and SwiftUI. How did that happen? Yeah, so I guess this started many years ago. Three to like start writing code for this terminal, but longer than that in terms of I've written a lot of CLI-based applications for my professional work at HashiCorp. And all of our tools have a CLI element for the most part. And over the years, I kept getting refrustrated over and over again by just little paper cuts of re-implementing progress bars and doing fancier multi-line output and like colors and what works on Windows, what doesn't work on Windows, what works in different terminal emulators and so on. And I always just kind of figured out my way around it, but never fully understood it. So Mm -hmm. around three years ago, I finally said, okay, let's actually understand this. And so I started writing a terminal escape code. I didn't even know at the time if it was VT100 or what compatibility, but VT style escape code emulator in Go. And the actual motivation was for a Hashbar project where we were shipping the raw terminal stream through and storing it in the database and then replaying it in your CLI uh-huh. from a remote end. And I just wanted to make sure it all behaved correctly and be able to test it. So I started implementing in Go and then I got interested in Zig and I thought that would be a cool project to just sort of implement in it for really no reason. I just thought it would be cool. And then one thing led to another. I kept building on top of it. And over literally years, it became a fully featured terminal emulator. I've been using it full time for my non-terminal work since May of last year. So a little over a year now. So I don't know about you, but whenever I end up doing a side project that I end up using for personal stuff, there's always some level of polish that I just never quite get to where I'm like, you know, Mm. there's these like paper cuts and like features missing. And I'm like, I could fix that, but the amount of time it would take me to fix it, I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to like, this is not why I got into this project is to polish it. It's like I got into it because I wanted to learn a new thing or something like that. You have that same yep. kind of stuff with, <laughs> with the Oh, for sure. Now I have about like 15 people using it. Just like people I know really closely that are on the private repo and stuff. But there's definitely paper cuts. Like, for example, for the Mac users, there's no configuration like UI. So you have to do it all via the file file format and a particular paper cut everyone seems to run into that I want to fix. But once you get over it, you're over it forever. There's no like font selection, font preview thing. So you kind of like write, type the font name, save, restart the whole process, save the font, stuff like that. But other than that, as people have been reporting paper cuts, I've generally fixed it if it isn't Mm -hmm. too bad. Yeah, I would say like it feels pretty good right now, but it's not like I couldn't just release it to the masses. That's for sure. Right. Well, I mean, you could, but then you just get flooded with like, you know, hey, this doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Although, I mean, I just won't name them because I'm not trying to shame anyone. There are very popular terminal emulators out there with way less features. But people do complain for sure, but they're successful. So I always look at it that way where it's like maybe people would get over it. That's fair. But I mean, for me, at least as a maintainer, I always feel a certain amount of like pressure and stress when mm-hmm. there's, I know there's people who are like, hey, I'm suffering here. Like, can't you fix my thing? And I'm like, I could, but at what cost? What am I not doing yet to do that? And that's mainly why I haven't open sourced it yet. I plan to release it and open source it sometime, but I'm trying to figure out what the right balance is with that. 
Yeah, that's a tricky thing that I think is kind of underappreciated in the like, I don't know, the sort of open source dynamic is just that like, yes, there is a benefit to like bringing something out in the world and sharing it. But it's like, it's immediately a source of incoming stress and pressure, kind of unavoidably. Mm -hmm. And like, even if everybody has the best of intentions, it's just going to happen. And so as somebody who's like, debating, do I want to like, make this gift to the world and just say, hey, now everyone can use this and have access to the source code and everything. It's not free for you. There's a cost to you to doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I never know if that's like a personal thing that I put the pressure on myself or if that has changed. Because I, I mean, I remember 15 years ago, open sourcing stuff was pretty low pressure because it felt like there was more of the expectation or lack of expectation that this was supported in any way whatsoever. And I think right. in part because of some of the stuff I did in a small way, but like the much greater group of people that have started doing commercial open source at a much right. larger scale, I think people now have a different notion of open source by default versus the default that, oh, this is just somebody uploading a targies of a code dump. Right. I remember like this comment and it's a hacker news comment. So, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt, but it's kind of stuck with me with someone saying, yes, this is an 0.1 release of whatever the topic was at hand. But I come to expect a certain level of polish from an 0.1 release. <laughs> like, man. Yeah, we felt that at HashiCorp over time too, because I mean, not just Vagrant, but like going back to Terraform 0.1, like Terraform 0.1 was really, really bad. Mm. It did what I always wanted a 0.1 to do. And my goal was always just to show the idea, like show the vision, basically. It wasn't meant to be this production ready thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, zero, I mean, Terraform 0.1 crashed. It supported only AWS, pretty much only 10 resources. So yeah, so Terraform 0.1 wasn't very usable, but over time, I think as those products became more successful, people expected a lot more from a 0.1. And of course, as the company became more of a commercial entity, people expected to be able to use a 0.1. And it's hard. And it fights with my personal motivations because open sourcing for me was always a way to really show an idea and get a community involved and less of ship a thing you're going to sell. Yeah. Honestly, I, I feel like my experience with Rock so far has been that we've intentionally not shipped a 0.1 yet. It's intentionally, there is no version number. And this is one of the main reasons why is just to set expectations. And in my mind, I just had this phrase pop into it, which is like, no version number is the new 0.1. <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. saying that there's no numbered release. <laughs> yeah. But it's working out. I mean, we just have nightly releases and that's it. It's open source, but it pretty clearly communicates it. That's what I do for the 15 people using the terminal. That's what I do. We have a CI process that builds signed releases. And I do like the little Git trick to do a linearized build number on the main branch. I don't know this trick. What is this trick? There's like a one liner that'll just count the commits that are from you to like the initial commit on your path. It'll count it from any branch you want, but I just count it from main. And I use that as a build number, as a strictly monotonically increasing build number. That's really clever. I actually stole it, though, from Zig, because that's how Zig's builds get there. They restarted at every release. So I don't know, whatever, you're on build like 3,000, but it's 3,000 since the last 0.10 or 0.9 or whatever. But I just did it from zero, and it's helpful. Okay, nice. Yeah, we got to steal that. Because right now, they're all just like, hey, it's this commit. You know, Ashes. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, totally unhelpful. Yeah, <laughs> nice. I also remember that I mean, it's been so long now that I, I forgot, but we also started out with a private repo. And the thing that I did, which I don't know, maybe you want to steal if you want to. But at first, it was just only me and a couple of people who knew about it. And then when I wanted to quasi open it up, I basically posted, hey, anyone can have access to this. You just got to email me and I'll add you. And that's what I've been thinking. Yeah, it's just a little bit of intentional friction. But by the end of it, before we opened up the repo, we had like 700 people that I would manually added, wow, which wow. made me realize... <laughs> 
I definitely at some point crossed the line where I should have set up a script to do it, but but it was always just like one or two per day. So I was like, eh, I'm not going to write a whole script for that, but yeah, that's likely the direction this will take is my guess is probably like a discord, like join the discord and we'll get you access to the repo and set the expectations really low. Yeah. It's interesting that this feels somewhat like an open source cultural thing where I guess if you rewind back to like, you know, early internet days, maybe the first time these licenses were even a thing, then the hard part was sharing was so high friction and collaborating especially was so high friction that this is like a weird problem to even imagine having. And mm-hmm. also like companies weren't really doing it. And then now we've come to this moment where there is a lot more pressure on creators. And I don't think it's just you and me feeling this. I think it's not everybody either. I think there's some people yeah. who are just like, I don't know, I put it out there. And like, if somebody has an issue, I don't care. They, they, <laughs> that's yeah, their problem, yeah. not mine. But I don't feel that way. And it sounds like you don't either. And I, I'm pretty sure there's, that's how a lot of us feel. But at the same time, this is kind of a new phenomenon that's only come about because of where things just were. And so maybe the next shift is that people start doing more of this intentional friction stuff as a way to take pressure off of ourselves. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure. Yeah. Be interesting to see how it develops, I guess. So the other part that you mentioned was this isn't purely Zig. It's also it's Zig and Swift UI. Because I'm guessing yeah. that was because you wanted the sort of the window chrome and the tabs and stuff to be native. Pretty much, yeah. So and that, it's Zig plus Swift UI for Mac. So this mm-hmm. is a cross-platform terminal emulator. Uh, it also supports Linux. That's the only other platform currently. But it's built in a way that I should be able to bolt on certain parts of Windows and make that better over time. But it just hasn't been a motivating problem for me yet. Yeah. So on, on Linux, it's actually almost pure Zig. There's some C in there to interact with some things, but 99% pure Zig also binds with GTK for a richer window experience, GLFW if you just want a lightweight windowing experience. But if you, you use the GLFW build, like I don't have, there's no tabs and no splits and stuff like that. It's basically. Uh-huh. For people like me, actually, I use a tiled window manager and I don't need any yeah. of that. So I built it for me. But on Mac, yeah, I wanted a really native feeling windowing experience. And I originally sort of wrote Objective-C bindings. Actually, publicly on my GitHub, have a Zig Objective-C binding package. Nice. And I use it still, but not for the Chrome anymore. But I started that, used pure AppKit, building the windows line by line in Zig calling the bindings. But I really quickly just ran into technically everything that SwiftUI does is possible, I think, in AppKit. But there's just so much it does for you automatically. And it also does, in top of the Chrome, it does all the UI state management and animations Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff for you. Again, possible if you dive down into like core animation, these low levels manually, but it was like one line in SwiftUI or hundreds in AppKit. So I was really motivated to figure out how to get SwiftUI to work. And so I realized I could sort of get it to work by switching the host language here. If the host language became Swift and it bound to a CABI that was Zig compiled or anything, but in my case, Zig, then I could get this to work. So the build process switched from being pure Zig build for Mac to Zig build to create a fat static library and then actually Xcode build to produce the final sign notarized app. And the signing and notarizing was another reason I wanted to use Xcode because it's all nicely built in. And that's sort of how I tied it together. It's a healthy amount of sort of like um, calling into Zig, but also passing function pointers into Zig to call back into Swift. So it's very bi-directional in terms of what's Mm -hmm. happening. Sometimes keyboard events from Swift obviously call back into Zig, but sometimes 
you know, you type exit and your terminal hit enter, the sub process dies, and Zig wants to call back into Swift to let it know that 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 terminal is over. Whatever the UI wants to do with that information, it just lets it know that the terminal session's over. So yeah, it's worked out really well. Like I've had no real problems whatsoever. Um, I found a lot of CABI bugs in Zig. Those are all, <laughs> especially because I'm on an ARM Mac. So a lot of ARM CABI issues, but they've been really quick about fixing those. Yeah, we've uh, run a lot of CABI stuff in Rock. I've heard it described as a rite of passage as a compiler author to discover that LLVM does not take care of CABI for you. And you have That's to how Andrew yourself. describe it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're the funniest. They're the spookiest. That basically, when I see a really spooky issue, I'm like, it's probably an ABI issue. Like, it's, yeah. it's acting super weird, but it's just the weirdest things. There's so many weird rules around, like, if the struct is a certain size, it's registers yep. versus stack versus whatever. And it's like, Everything worked fine, and then you added a new field to a, a struct and thought nothing of it, and then everything breaks. <laughs> yep. Or you add one more argument that you're passing, and suddenly it's, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the more interesting things I've found through this project that I really didn't expect to find was, so far, I found three GPU driver bugs in wow. the Mac metal drivers. Cool. <laughs> I don't know why this is. I think one cool part of my terminal is, as far as I know... Me, my private terminal, obviously not released. Warp, which is the Rust, like, venture capitalized terminal. Mm-hmm. I think these two are the only metal, like, pure metal-backed renders for terminals. iTerm has one, but if you turn on ligatures, it goes back to a CPU one, which is kind of strange. And that's all I know of. And, like, everybody else, Kitty, Alacrity, and so on, they use OpenGL. So that goes through a translation layer down to metal. And there so, but directly... good. Oh, there's a, um, I'm totally blanking on the name right now, but there's a relatively new editor uh, that has a built-in terminal. And I know that they use oh, metal for, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Th- that I guess that counts. Yeah, I thought of it yeah. as an editor, but they do have a terminal. So right. I think, though, that my issues are coming from using metal directly, which I don't regret. Like switching from OpenGL to metal, line for line, converting the shaders instantly increased performance by about 10% in terms of the render frame time, just because if you look at the stack traces, it just goes through a translation layer anyway. So I think I'm skipping the <laughs> translation layer, that was like 10%. But yeah, I'm finding bizarre issues. And all of them so far have been on Intel Max. And I don't know if this is true. I got a DM from somebody who seemed legit. I like Googled him and seemed legit. He works uh-huh. for Apple. And he just said, Hey, I can't say it publicly. But Basically, there's nobody maintaining the Intel GPU driver anymore. So you just got to work around this. And that totally makes sense. I think Uh, now they don't sell any Intel Macs anymore, I don't think. So totally makes sense. But I can't wait for them to deprecate Intel because I don't have an Intel Mac anymore. I have five users that are on Intel Macs and they report these crashes and I just cannot fix them. (laughs) Yeah. I had a similar situation at work recently, which is an issue where I was like building a rock binary for Intel Mac and went and pinged the guy who was the last guy I knew at the engineering department who had an Intel Mac. And I was like, hey, <laughs> you know, can you try this out? And somebody else was like, he's on vacation, but actually he doesn't have one now. So I was like, do I do I get to stop yeah. dealing with this? <laughs> Soon, hopefully. Uh, hopefully, officially, next year, hopefully, is the year Apple deprecates Intel or something. It's pretty brutal now. And I tweeted about some of the workarounds. They're super funny. I mean, they're like, like one of the GPU driver bugs was that if your shader structure wasn't aligned like if, if it's on certain alignments it just crashes it just like huh. the shader program just crashes and figuring that same similar thing where like i added a new struct field it changed the yeah. alignment and everything started crashing but it should work fine it works fine on 
arm things, like it's totally fine. But if I reorder the fields to where I change the alignment back to what it was, everything's great, even with the extra fields. So I just added a nice zig like comp time test with a annoying comment explaining why <laughs> comp time check the alignment. But yeah. I want to get rid of stuff like that because it just it's pure mental overhead for me as a programmer that functionally doesn't affect things enough to matter. And this is exactly the type of thing that I would put under the category of this isn't why I started doing this project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, somebody's using an Intel Mac, you want to fix it. Unless yeah. it's you using the Intel Mac, then I guess you have to fix it. Yeah. But I think it's interesting, like, whenever I hear stories about, and I've occasionally had this happen myself too, it's somebody working at, it could be Apple. I mean, Apple's kind of the most notoriously secretive about things, but I guess other, like, big companies. It's always interesting talking to somebody and then they're like, yeah, eh, you know, don't waste your time on this because it's not public <laughs> yet, but like, they're not going to not going to do that anymore. Yeah. And it's like, on the one hand, I appreciate it. But on the other hand, it's like, what about everybody else who doesn't have the inside track? On that? Yeah. You know, there's, there's somebody else suffering through like, ah, I just got to spend one more weekend porting this to work on Intel Mac. And then they find out, oh, no, it's just totally deprecated. Yeah, totally. I mean, Intel, I mean, Apple, one of my biggest frustrations has been like the SwiftUI stuff. And not just SwiftUI, like, you know, my, my font rasterized and font discovery is all Cortex and things like that, like using Apple core libraries, I should say more generally, um, is that they're closed source mostly. Like you could yeah. sometimes find some that are on the open source Apple website, but they're mostly closed source. So when something isn't working the way I expect, when I was working on the metal stuff and I just wasn't sure why certain triangles weren't rendering. OpenGL is nice because you could actually like dig into some of those drivers and just like, mm -hmm. I don't understand how GPUs work at a deep level, but that this is the surface API level, just being what state is this changing in OpenGL? And you can yeah. find that pretty easily. And Metal, I was just like, I have no idea what magic order I need to call these things in to get this to work. And stuff like that is super frustrating. So I wish the foundation and SwiftUI stuff was open source just from a be able to learn what because their documentation just isn't good enough right now yeah and I, I mean like you can always like technically disassemble it and kind of like do that but that's just like such a horrible way I'm not to try good to enough at assembly yeah. for that well maybe I mean, you've got this, that but i can't i can't oh, do I, that right I, now. I i definitely do not have that <laughs> but like <laughs> i mean there's there's an element of like once you've lost all the context of like the names and stuff that were in the source code then it's like just the amount of effort required to understand what the code is doing is just off the charts so yeah i, I think but at the same time, I also kind of understand Apple's perspective, at least on not wanting to like open source it. I mean, some of the stuff that we were just talking about, like, you know, you open source it and now you're going to get a flood of, you know, feature requests. Well, I guess you're going to get feature requests anyway, but pull requests of someone saying like, hey, I went ahead and made this change. And you're like, wait, this is a design question. And actually, I'm not necessarily on board with your design, but now you did all this work and, <laughs> and yeah. now it's awkward. Yeah. So I, I do kind of wonder about like, if anyone at Apple has ever considered, what if we just publish the sources and just said, here are the sources, but you know, we're not accepting contributions at this time or something like that. Um, yeah, it feels like they already have a system for that. That's why I wish they would do it right there. Open source.apple.com. Like those are just code dumps. There's no collaboration at all. I think they've recently started mirroring some to GitHub, but they turn off all the issues and stuff. So yeah, like it feels like they already have a system for that. It's just, yeah, they don't. But I wonder yeah. about, I mean, maybe there's a security question when it comes to certain yeah. level things. So yeah. that could be an aspect of it too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What's your sort of like moment to moment workflow here? Are you actually writing Zig code in Xcode or? No. Uh, you, okay. <laughs> so you write all the code outside of Xcode, and then you jump into Xcode when you want to like run it or how does that interaction work? I mentioned this actually, I think in a Hacker News comment, but 
in terms of or, or in my blog post for my project, I mean, for a terminal, there's not a ton of UI associated with a terminal. Sure. So the the breakdown of Swift to Zig is still like, I think it's like 95% Zig to 5% Swift. So I only need to hop into Xcode when I'm modifying Swift. And that's only when I'm working on UI code, which is quite rare. So most of the time I could work directly in NeoVim is my editor. I work directly in NeoVim. I write Zig. And then the GLFW build also works for Mac. It just does again, doesn't have tabs and splits and all the UI stuff that I did in Swift. But if I'm like, like, for example, last week, one of uh, the users of the terminal realized that I didn't support colored underlines and that bothered me. So I implemented colored underlines a couple days ago. And I did all that through just using the GLFW Mac build because then I could do a pure Zig uh, CLI workflow. I didn't have Xcode open nice. at all. I could do Zig build test, Zig build run, uh, run my test scripts and see it work. And then I commit it. And the CI that I have set up in my private repo does a full Mac build. So yeah, it, as long as that works, I feel pretty good about it. And then I run the Mac build after it comes out of release. So I'll find issues pretty quickly. But yeah, for the most part, I don't have Xcode open ever. So I guess you still do it for code signing, though, even the like, even if there's no UI Chrome and you're not using Swift for any of that, because um, well, if it's local, right? I don't sign it at all. And then oh, the sure. CI yeah. signs it and uses the Xcode CLI. Yeah. Okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting. We we haven't gotten around to like trying to sign rock binaries yet. We're kind of dreading it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny. I have history here. Like, I was more comfortable with it than I think most people are because I, when code signing and notarization became like mandatory for Mac, yeah, I wrote this tool in Go called Gon G O N Go Object Notarization. I don't know. I, I forgot what it stands for uh, because we had this issue at HashiCorp where suddenly overnight, basically over a few months, but it felt overnight we had to sign and notarize all our binaries or they wouldn't run. And so I wrote this tool that could do it in CI on a Linux machine, right? And so I knew what it was. And and because I knew, though, I knew I didn't want to deal with it. (laughs) That's that's why I tried to shell out Xcode build. And nowadays, uh, I wouldn't be too scared of it because there's actually pretty good GitHub actions. They're just scary because they got to take some pretty important secrets. But if you look at the source and feel good about it, you can just pin to a version. But there's some pretty good GitHub actions out there that do the signing and notarization for you. It's not, not too bad. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right. I'll have to check those out. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I would do. I wouldn't I wouldn't try to manually figure it out. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I know like um, like Jakob on, uh, on Zig Team is like yeah. working on yeah building a code signing in pure Zig, which is really cool. So the code signing is great. Uh, then you have the notarization problem, which is like you still have to zip up your binary and ship it off to Apple, and they do some black box stuff on it and then ship it back. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't even yeah. know about that part. <laughs> yeah. So if you sign it, if you don't sign it, nothing like it won't run at all on a Mac anymore once you ship it to another person's computer. But if you don't notarize it, it also won't run unless you do like some like Control Shift Right Click thing to it. So yeah, notarization is like you you take your binary bits, put them in a certain folder structure, then zip them, then send it to Apple servers. They do like antivirus scans on it. And then they send back an attestation that proves it was notarized, signed by their key. And you have to staple that to your binary and then it'll run. So that's really annoying because you know, that service goes down once in a while uh-huh. and then you can't cut a release and sometimes it's overloaded and notarization will take like minutes. If it's not overloaded, it's still like 30 seconds. Like it's not a fast process. So definitely a CI thing. 
Is there a GitHub action for that? Or yep, yep, yep. <laughs> nice, nice. All yeah, right, because sweet. Xcode build, the CLI Xcode build, basically does all this for you, even for non Xcode build. Like there's there's commands that'll just take a zip that you built to do the run the notarization notarization and stapling for you. So yeah, they, you kind of like have to massage, but none of this is documented. So you have to like find the people online who figured it out and and carve a <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, at least it's possible. I mean, that, that's yeah. the type of thing where, yeah, like you, you get it set up once, then you just pray that nothing ha- ever has a breaking API change and, and you have to touch it again. Yeah, I go back and forth because it's funny on the Mac side, you know, Linux people complain about that because it is very like corpo culture, like kind of like annoying that you have to get all this, these things working to, to release software and make it runnable on people's computer. Yeah. It does feel a little oppressive. But then it's like pros and cons because on the Mac side, if you build something and it runs, it tends to run on every Mac and like works pretty well. Like it's very consistent. Like you just opened it up that whole ecosystem, but then Linux, yeah, you can compile and ship. You don't have to sign anything and it all kind of goes, but then it's like you have to deal with everybody's weird combination of OS libraries and things like that. So it's like, okay, pros and cons on both sides. Yeah. Right now that's, that's the thing we're dealing with on the Linux side is like seeing that like the rock binary works on some builds of Linux, but not others because we have like LLVM pulls in like some lib C dependencies that are dynamic. So now we're like, okay, well, we want to switch to muscle, but in order to do that, we got to do a muscle build of LLVM. And so now I'm like, somehow I've, my life has ended up where I'm watching a progress bar tick by as it, you know, builds LLVM over a couple of hours. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, like, actually, a shout out to Zig folks again, because Andrew pointed me to how Zig does that, because Zig also builds LLVM on Muscle. And so he's like, just take this script. So I just took it and kind of, like, nice. hacked it apart, adapted it for our needs, and uh, there you go. But also, it, it feels like it's in that same kind of category as the signing, where it's like, why is this something that we need to do? Why can't this just be taken care of? Yeah, yeah, and I have to, I mean, a, a big shout out to Zig's cross compilation possibilities. I mean, it's super, super handy just to verify even builds work uh, across different architectures and different OSs. Um, I use that all the time, especially on Linux. I use it on Linux with QMU all the time in order to actually run tests. And then I use it just as a sanity check on Linux that I could build the Mac binaries. It's super awesome. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I've most recently used that at work for, so we have like a Node.js backend uh, that we're like introducing Rock to, but of course Rock compiles the binaries, so it has to be like done through native Node add-ons. And it turns out that the process that Node uses to build native add-ons is not really cross-compilation friendly, which is a problem Mm. if you're building locally and you want to deploy to a Lambda, like on your Mac, and you want to deploy to a Linux Lambda. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that after doing some like digging around to figure out what the node process is actually doing, which turns out to be node calling Python, which makes a make file, which then runs Clang, I was able to replace all of that with just one single call to Zig CC and it nice. works cross platform and is like way faster. And <laughs> we don't have to have a Python dependency or anything else. Nice. Yeah. 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 The, the one interesting thing I found for Zig is you still need all the headers for the, the C libraries that you're linking to, uh, dynamically yeah. linking to. And, Zig ships all the libc headers, which is what makes the cross compilation part of it really nice. But when you're building a GUI app like I am, you need the X11 headers, Wayland headers. You need um, mm. uh, on Mac, you need all the Apple SDK headers, like the the frameworks and stuff. And I've been talking to you know, there's some legal questions I think around some of that stuff. But I would love to see Zig ships at least like the the Apple SDK, for example. Like I would love to see them ship those headers if legally it's possible, just because 
it is like the libc of mac for the most part yeah and but then the other stuff like uh there's i forgot his name steven but i forgot his last name but he does the mock project on zig it's like the game dev framework but oh, he yeah, has yeah. yeah i i use his um, <laughs> yeah yep yeah, yep yeah. i use his uh he calls them system sdks i use his system sdks for all like almost all my projects because they almost all depend on some of those libraries and all he does is he wrote a script that on various versions of linux and architectures extracts all those like common super popular desktop library headers mm. and so i could cross compile uh, yeah so obviously like as soon as you start to see a discussion about zig on any like link aggregator site immediately rust comes into the discussion it's just like it just happens <laughs> sure and and i i so rarely see people talking about this aspect of it because like cross compiling on rust is just like a totally different animal than cross compiling on zig and it's like this is an axis that's like it's a really big deal in my experience like i was familiar with rust before i'd even heard of zig and yet yeah of course now i have all these use cases where like zig is the thing that i reach for and a lot of them have to do with exactly like oh i'm cross compiling i don't want to deal with that in rustland but in zig even more impressively zig is just a single binary it's like you download this binary and like all of those headers that you just described are baked into the binary you don't even have to like get a distribution of zig it's just just get the one binary it's great you know, I use Rust here and there, but I was never a big user of Rust. And, and people ask me, of course, all the time, like, why don't I use Rust? No I doubt, think it's yeah. like, it's a, it's a, such a joke when you release like a project in Zig, especially. That's like the first question people ask. And and I've made it really clear, like I have, I, I super like Rust, like philosophically and all that sort of stuff. I think there's a really human element, a cultural element to languages. Like I think language features and the standard library design and the release style, like all of these things of a language help create this culture, whether you want it or not, of how programmers in that community also build software in that language. And so like, I was in Go a lot. So Go had this very pragmatic culture, because I I always described Go as like a painfully pragmatic language. It's not particularly excellent at anything. It's very good enough at a lot of things. And that's what made it really attractive. And, you know, that pisses people off that are looking for excellence. But because of that, it brings in this culture of people a lot of good enough people, I would say. Yeah. Um, and that's just one small part of it. There's a testing culture. There's a compatibility culture. There's all sorts of stuff. And for some reason, like just with Rust, like as much as I liked the language, mostly from a technical perspective, every time I like started using libraries and interacting with the community and stuff, like they're all nice. That don't, I'm not saying they're not nice, but like it just like wasn't people that I felt I could online hang out with. Hmm. And that kind of like killed it for me. Like. One thing I like about Zig for, for whatever reason is I liked the language. I started using it. I like, I like C. So it felt more comfortable to me, honestly, than Rust. I like C. Sure. But then I hopped into the discord and immediately like started connecting with people. Um, and in a way that I just didn't with the Rust community. And I think that's okay. Like, I think people try to build these languages that like everybody will use, but I just don't. I think it's cool to have a diverse sort of like cultural element as well as a technical element to languages. And, um, yeah, so that's that's sort of my my thing. I mean, I think with the terminal project, Zig has been excellent just because I do tons of unsafe stuff. Um, yep. <laughs> in the yeah. name of speed, but yeah, I mean, it's I've never had a memory crash uh, in the in the for the fifteen testers that are happening like an unsafe like issue pop up. Mostly, we run in release safe mode, so we would find it. But 
yeah, it, it's, but it's really helpful in order to like really carefully control memory and like be able to share memory, knowing it's safe um, in certain scenarios or um, in some scenarios, like I share memory uh, specifically being like, this could be corrupted, but it doesn't matter because like, the the color might be wrong for like one frame and I don't care. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I definitely think that's an underrated aspect of um like the, the the use case piece of it is like if you're doing interop across languages like you are and like we always are all the time with Rock, it's like safety in Rust is is kind of a false promise. Like as soon as you get to that boundary, it's like all bets are off and you're right back in like I'm doing all the memory management and having to think about lifetimes without any help from any compiler. And mm-hmm. you just need tools that are like, well, the, the only tools that can be helpful to you in that scenario are tools that are like not trying to help you at compile time. Cause once you get to runtime, yeah. there, there just is no more help. And the, the other language is a total black box. They're not going to have lifetime annotations. Swift does not have lifetime annotations for you to hook into. Right. right. Yeah. I think that, uh, that community aspect is also a really good point. I think something going back to go for a second, like I know it's, it's, popular for people to say like, Hey, I, I, I hate this about go, or I, you know, can't stand that about go, but especially people who don't use go day to day, I suppose. But I think a really underrated contribution, like you said, like pragmatism over excellence, but some of the underrated contributions that I think go has made to programming languages in general are around tooling. Like oh, yeah. when I think about formatting, formatting is, is probably the, the biggest, most obvious example where it's yeah. like people today are talking about like, Oh, prettier and like cargo format. It's mm-hmm. like, where did all those come from? It's like, mm-hmm. that just came from Go. <laughs> that was, yeah, 100%. That was original one. And it also, uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe GoFump doesn't have any configuration. Is that right? To this day, it's zero. Yeah. Yeah. So the only ones that I know that did that. And people hated biggest, that. Like, I think people are more okay with it now. I don't know if like, just, I'm sure you know this, but like for anyone who listens to this and they weren't around, like there was years of early Go where like there was violent, online discourse around the oh, hate around the lack of configurability of fumps like it was so unreasonable and, and yeah people got past that for the most i part. actually didn't know that well so so my yeah. first encounter with a formatter was elm format which was based on gofump it was like hey they mm-hmm. have this cool thing why don't we do this and the whole pitch was let's stop arguing about style let's pick pick something that's like good enough and the whole point if you're going to prevent those arguments you got to have no config or else people argue yeah. about the config <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And, and like to this day, that just seems like so obviously correct to me. And like, that's the type of thing where I would think that someone would say, well, the pragmatic approach is you're going to make it configurable. And if you're really going to like live in your ivory tower and go for perfection, then you have no configuration, which, you know, maybe is or is not against the spirit of go. But I think it's a good example of saying of like drawing a hard line and saying like, no, this is the best way to do it. And we're going to stick to it, even if, you know, people might say, yeah, but, but in my one use case, you know, yeah. if you want to get the benefit, you kind of need to go all the way. If you want to get the most benefit, you got to go all the way with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like instead, it's like, instead of like pragmatism, it's sort of like a language of compromise in a certain, a certain mm. extent, because I was always, and I think this is a good example of culturally what attracted me to it. Like I had never seen formatting before I saw go format. They call it thumped, go thumped yep. uh, until yep. I saw thumping. But every project team I joined prior to that, you know, before I was at Hotch before I started Hotch Corp, like when I was uh, at normal sort of like engineering jobs, the first thing I would do is just ask people like tabs versus spaces. Tell me how many, sure. I don't care. <laughs> you just tell me and I don't care. And right. so when I got to go and they were like, we're just going to tell you it has to be this way. It has to be this many uh, spaces and whatever. I was like, great, who cares? <laughs> like now I don't yeah. Now I never need to have this discussion with people. It's awesome. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, 
a really good example of something that culturally, and like I said, early on, caused quite a stir and is way less controversial now. Like, yeah, people started latching on to other stuff after that, like generics and so on. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> well, yeah. But even beyond Fumped, I mean, there's also just like built-in testing, right? Like, obviously, every language CLI should ship with a way to run tests. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if I were to look back early go, like what stood out as different for the time and, and less different now, this is like over 10 years ago now, was fumping obviously and then um static binary building by default oh yeah was, was also, like a really yeah. like the push to machine code plus single binary was like very unique at the time yeah. and then um also uh cross compilation compilation i keep messing up that word but um <laughs> yeah just being able to set some environment variables and get a binary out for a totally different os and architecture i mean that was impossible at the time um in a in a non-interpreted non-managed language basically yeah, and I think another thing that which you know you could argue shouldn't be seen as a feature, but I think in this in today's ecosystem of popular programming languages has to be seen as a feature, which is builds quickly. Oh <laughs> like, yeah, I mean that's like that's another glaring difference in my mind. Difference between Zig and Rust is like how yes, fast yes, yes. how fast your feedback loop is. Uh, talking yeah. to the compiler, and I don't know. Stuff. I don't know if Andrew ever you know, was motivated in any way by Go. I certainly haven't heard him say that, but, you know, Zig's build fast. Build, I've heard him say that building fast is a goal for Go, yeah. uh, for Zig. And that was always an explicitly stated goal for Go from the right. get-go as well, because they were fighting this the Google C++ build times. So I think... That's the one area I saw Go slip over my 10 years of using it. You know, wrote maybe it the self-hosted... I don't know what caused the slip, but like, okay. I, it feels like, and maybe it's just, maybe I'm just totally wrong here. It could be, but like, it felt like when I first started building, like Packer was the first project I wrote and go, yeah, I felt like the builds were like instant and I had a binary and they did stuff. And then I felt like as I got to like Terraform and Vault and so on, they, they're certainly orders of magnitude faster than C++, a couple, but then, you know, you'd run go build and it would still, they would now go from like one second or less to like, five to 10 seconds on the really? build. And and that really bugged me a lot. But yeah, yeah I mean, because, you know, if it gets long enough, there's some period where it gets long enough where your brain will context switch. Because yes. like, you'll, you'll like, it'll be long enough where you now tab. And then it go even though the build might be five seconds, if, the, if you do the context switch, the build is practically now like a minute because now you're going to like answer an email or something exactly. like that. And so, Preach. yeah, it's like yeah. you got to <laughs> You got to keep it fast enough where you don't, yeah, there's always this like thing where it's like one equals two or people uh, n equals m whatever pick two different variables, but like five seconds is equivalent to a minute for me because of that because of the yeah. context switch. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I, my goal for Rock is like always sub second, so like to the point where I actually have it hard coded, and I hope to never change this. That like every time you build, it prints out how long the build took, and it's hard coded to print it in milliseconds because mm. if we're ever going up into seconds, then like that's it's not a bug, but it's like a let's talk about what can we do about this type scenario. Yeah. And that, that's, yeah. in my mind, that should be what every language is aiming for, unless there's a really, really specific reason not to. Yeah, yeah. Like, so my terminal from scratch takes like 10 or 15 seconds to build, which itself is a marvel because the zig is instant, but it's, I, you know, compile from source, free type, parf buzz, like all, curl, all these like things that compile from source using zig. And so like, 
the fact that Zig is able to do that, it actually used to be over a minute, but then uh, Zig merged the parallelized build steps and that just like, boom. So like it is 15 seconds. It is quite long. But to me, my motivation there is I need less C in the project. Like if I could help it, because that's the slowdown for me is like, there's, there's sort of a limit on the speed that Zig's going to, you know, it, it's just calling clang. So it's the limit of clang. And so it's, oh, I see. To, to me, it's sort of like, okay, the more stuff that I could port over to native Zig, the faster this is going to get. And so I don't blame Zig for that, but that's how I do it. And Go is the same way, like pure Go, you know, I was talking the five to ten seconds thing. I was talking about pure Go, like the, the, yeah, yeah. the pure Go Terraform stuff was five to 10 seconds, which I felt was too slow, but sometimes like Vault and other projects did link to C and that was regularly over 10 seconds. But again, I didn't blame Go for that. That was like, sub-processing to see compilers going on. So it's going to be slow. So one motivation for rewriting your uh, dependencies in Zig is like, how great of a name would Zarf Buzz be? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I follow, uh, I forgot his name off the top of my head. I follow the creator of HearthBuzz, the maintainer of HearthBuzz on Twitter. And uh, I read the commits and I learned a lot about font shaping doing this. And he's a hero because <laughs> that is a, that is a thankless job, and I'm trying to give him thanks here because that is that is a boring seeming tedious, annoying problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there's a lot of stuff like that I mean like like Jakob working on like code signing right it's like this is yeah. a it's a pain point for everybody, but hopefully it won't be thankless in his case either <laughs> hopefully yeah people I mean I guess some people you. will say say that about kind of everything like people work on compilers, most people don't want to work on compilers, so they're like. Thank you to those people who care. I think compilers are cool. Yeah. But even I got that with some of the infrastructure tooling was like, how can you be passionate about like spinning up infrastructure? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I won. I, I am, I guess, or, you know, whatever you want to say it. At the, t- the time I built it, like I wanted to do nothing more than just build that tool. So, right. Yeah, I get it. Well, I think, I don't know about you, but for me, there's a certain element of like, when something bothers me in a way where I'm like, how has no one made this nice? then yes. there's some moment where it transitions into an opportunity like, wait, I could make it nice. That, yes, that, that exactly. becomes like really motivating. <laughs> That's what changed for me for the terminal at a certain point was um, was basically like, okay, I understand how it works. Oh, this is okay. Oh, I could start doing my own things to make this better now. And then, yeah, so I do that. Yeah, which is great. And I, I think, at least for me, the end goal is like, it's not just about, I want to make this nicer for myself. It's partly that, but it's also just thinking about if I solve this problem, then nobody has to deal with this anymore. Or like everybody can benefit from like enjoying this better experience that feels like the way it ought to be. Yes, exactly. Yes. I definitely get a lot of vibes on that from Andrew too. Like when it comes to Zig, it's just like, why is it so hard to cross compile? Why is it (laughs) like, and at some point he's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this myself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always that's always been my like main motivator. Solve my own problems, number one. Like, I don't, I tend not to work on things that I don't have, I don't share the problem. But then, then motivated exactly as you said. It's like if I solve this for me, maybe it'll solve it for someone else, which is cool. I also, this is definitely the best way that I learn things. Like you mentioned, like part of the motivation was wanting to learn how like the terminal works at a lower level, and and same thing with the yeah. graphics stuff. But like I actually pretty actively struggle to learn those things any other way besides building something. And it, it also, I just, I know a lot of people like to do toy problems and puzzles and stuff, but I just can't get the motivation to, to do those, especially when it comes to like pushing through something hard and like trying to wrap my brain around something. It's like, it has to be at the intersection of, I genuinely want the end result to exist. <laughs> 
and I need to learn stuff in order to get to that end result. That's what like yeah clicks and makes it so I can push through and actually learn it. Well, there's uh, there's there's a word for this, and I don't remember the word, but there's like learning to do something and actually learning to do something, right? Because like there's for example, like building compilers interpreters got really popular, and a ton of resources came out uh, over the past let's say five years. Uh, you know, like Robert Nystrom's Crafting Interpreters book, sure. Gor- gorgeous, high quality, awesome. I've read it, came out. And I know a lot of people have read that. But then I feel pretty good that if I was like, here's a toy language, write a parser for it, they probably couldn't do it, right? They read the book and they worked through the problems once through the book. But like, unless you actually like build a project, I think um, you, there's the learning where you like, they understand now the concepts of a parser, which itself is super valuable. But if you want to be able to actually build something, like you got to be able to really do it to understand the, the edges. And so, yeah, there's, there's, I think that was part of my motivation for, for building the terminal, obviously. And then there are parts that I depend on that I want to keep rewriting. So for example, I uh, completely unnecessary. I, the terminal started out depending on libuv as my main ah. async IO event loop thing. Um, it was a C dependency a big one. And I ended up writing a pure zig event loop cross-platform IOU ring on Linux, ePoll on Mac. Sweet. Um, oh, nice. Well, it's open source. It's lib, lib XEV. And it's used, been used in the terminal since I released that. Honestly, incredibly, I've only ever found one bug in the terminal based on that library. But, you know, it taught me a ton about the syscall interfaces that I thought I understood. Gave me a ton of respect for LibUV and some of the things it does. And yeah, it, it was a cool product and sped up my compile times. And also because of uh, some of my design choices, um, Zigs, you know, less allocations, things like that. Um, on Mac, I ended up being about getting about twice the throughput for my use case than LibUV. Um, nice. And so Linux, it was pretty much one for one. But I was super happy when I went from this is not a super useful practical benchmark but one of my benchmarks I use for my terminal is just catting a 10 gigabyte file and seeing how long it takes to reach the end and it doubled in speed so uh, have have the time doubled in speed um, and that was totally unexpected and cool i was just trying to learn basically how an event loop works so yeah nice that benchmark reminds me of uh I, i'm guessing you've heard of this project uh casey muratori posted about yeah. uh refter yeah. <laughs> yeah, did you actually cool. compare uh that that same benchmark that he ran to yours i never ran his all his stuff is windows right so i can't run any of his oh right i can't run any of his code but from i've watched a couple of his youtube episodes and he has a tool i forgot what it's called not slurp or something but he has some like command line tool that's like just streams data that at the speed of memory basically uh, right. and i'm pretty sure his terminal still way faster but it's been a couple years since i've looked at it but i remember concluding like I could be faster for sure, but like the issue came down to I have to parse some of these escape sequences. I can't just get rid of it. But the one thing I want to do that he did that I didn't end up doing was the SIMD look ahead for escape sequences. Like if there's no escape character in the next as many bytes as SIMD could, you know, the width of a SIMD lane, then I could just go as fast as I can. There's a ton of data oriented design I want to due to my terminal cell structure. I did some of it, but yeah, it's like if there's no escape sequences, you could basically think of the terminal screen as just a flat array where, you know, the columns and rows are, are stacked on top of each other, but it's just a flat array. Uh, so yeah. it should basically be the speed of memory. But then you get the issue that each cell also doesn't just have a byte uh, in it or a 
or code point or however you want to think about it. Each cell also has to have like foreground color, background con- color. Does it have an underline? Does the underline have color? Is this a UR- part of a URL? Is this a soft wrap? You know, like all sorts of metadata. So my current cell size is 12 bytes per cell. So if you have an 80 by 80, you know, 6400 times 12, it's going to be your memory size for that screen. So that's like my cell size. But I'm trying to, I, I want to figure out a data oriented way where maybe I could get the most commonly used things in the flat array. Because, for example, underline color, super rare, like maybe 1% of cells on an average screen have an underline color, maybe it's less like it's just an editor, basically. So wasting an underline color is red, green, blue. So three, uh, that's going to be 24 bits, three bytes. And so like wasting three bytes, but it's more because of alignment, but wasting three bytes just for underline color on every cell in your screen is totally dumb. So obviously, like it's screaming to have like a look aside, like hash map or something right. for that. You know, I haven't done little stuff like that, but that's what I should do because I have a feeling that'll actually work out. If I could do it and hit the breakpoints of sort of like cache friendliness and things like that, I think that'll actually dramatically speed things up. I just haven't done it yet. And with SIMD, you could maybe even chunk that. So you have like, let's mm-hmm. say like eight bytes at a time, but you could double that to 16. And then uh, one of them is just saying like, do I have any of these things? And then you can yeah. just check to see like, do any of my exactly. 16 bytes have anything unusual going on? If not, great, stream it straight out. Yep. That's yeah. what I would like to do, basically, is be able to... That's why I wanted to do the SIMD thing. because I think, And I think this is what uh, Casey does. He, he like looks at let's, the eight bytes... And then if they don't have an escape sequence, you could just copy those, like put those directly into the, the terminal structure. And that's right. what I want to be able to do, but I can't right now. I think so, he was doing yeah. that for like a separate parsing step, mm-hmm. maybe not for rendering, but I think, yeah, it's probably an opportunity to do both, uh, to, to get benefits on both sides. Yeah, I put in a, I put in a non-SIMD fast path right now to if we are in an escape sequence, it does something a little bit different. Um, it is kind of like hacky looking, so there's a ton of comments of what's going on. But that was critical to increasing my throughput benchmark on like the big cat. It increased it by probably about double on that one too. So nice. like I feel like if you just if I keep going down that path of shortening, you know, it, it, it's purely shortening the number of instructions I have to go through there. Obviously, so yeah. SIMD is another good example of something that I wish I had a concrete problem where SIMD would be the like the only way to solve it because I yeah. have this what what feels like a insufficiently I don't know deep understanding of SIMD or like I haven't really used it in anger yeah and I definitely in the like, same way yeah it's like the crafting interpreters thing like I feel like I have uh, a surface level understanding of it and I know like when it can be applied I can talk through applications of it but I haven't actually done the like go through a loop and then see if the, you know, the end is like not a number that fits in number of SIMD. And then you have to handle the extra bytes, you know, a little bit differently. And oh, you know, that, that's the worst, that type of stuff. Like I know it's there, but I've never actually had to do it. And so, well, and that gets, I haven't had to do as much, but that gets really gnarly because Intel introduced some nice instructions to make that way less annoying, oh. but arm doesn't have them. So uh. yeah, like you said, the, the old approach or that the approach used to be to just like, go into the slow path for the leftover bytes and just like right. loop over them. I think Intel added instructions. It's been a lot. It's been about a year since I like looked at these SIMD instructions, but I think Intel added a new instruction that's fairly widely available now, which basically says like to automatically pad something. So you could get to the last one and just like fill the lane with something else and just process it, like ignore. You could basically tell it how many bits you're giving it and the rest of it, it'll just like fill 
versus having to do that manually. I see. So, something like that, but ARM doesn't have that instruction, so yeah. Yeah, but then I wonder about stuff like, well, couldn't I just do that myself if I am in charge of how long this array is? Couldn't I just make sure that it's a multiple yep. of the SIMD, you know, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure you read, I mean, I read like, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, but Daniel Lemire, Lemire, uh, his blog. Oh, like, oh, yeah. I read like all his posts because the SIMD stuff is crazy uh, and so <laughs> impressive. He did SIMD JSON and stuff like that. And I've read his papers and it's like, yeah, I, I, you know, you could read the SIMD instructions and be like, yeah, this makes sense. And then I read like the SIMD JSON paper <laughs> and I had to reread, I had yeah. to reread like these two instructions like 10 times to be like, how did he parse an object start from this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like the, the like balance versus unbalanced um, quotation marks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. He's like that counting the parity of bits to do that. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and while handling backslash escapes as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that type of stuff, it's like, it's right at the intersection of this is obviously really powerful and really useful, but also really alien to me. <laughs> it's just so different yeah. than the type of programming I'm used to. It's obvious um, and super, super not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. once you look at it, I mean, it, it feels, it reminds me of hearing about some sort of new sorting algorithm or hashing algorithm or something yeah. where it's like, now that you've seen it, I understand that, 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 that this works and I believe that it's faster than what came before. But I cannot even imagine how much time it would have taken me to try and come up with this on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have this repo that's private because it it's not, not worth making public. But I have this repo, actually, that it uses Zig to do runtime SIMD detection. And oh, it is nice. based off the SIMD JSON code, basically, like using CPU ID, different platforms, uh, different architectures to figure out what you have. Because there's a big Zig issue on this. But uh, yeah, Zig has no way to basically like you could use their vector stuff and and hope that it produces the right thing but if you're trying to write a really tight specific simd algorithm like you basically have to drop down to assembly and do the do the detection yourself of what architecture you're on um, and there is this huge issue on being able to create functions that like target specific like multi-function type stuff so you have a function foo but if you call it on arm it calls this version of foo instead of this other version of foo for you yeah and yeah, I mean, I was just trying to do that, but without language support um, for. Yeah, we have stuff. a really basic version of that, uh, which I guess we're in the same boat uh, in the Rock Standard Library, where we're just trying to detect. Uh, I forget, it's like AVX two or something like that. And yeah, we we also rolled our own, <laughs> but yeah. it'd be nice if there was just a baked way to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a messy project, but I was just trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, anything else we should talk about? I feel like we covered a lot of different topics. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, there's so many things like in general. I mean, I think that there's so many things I want to blog about with regards to the terminal because it led me down, obviously the VT escape sequence parsing, GPU rendering, but also like font everything. So font discovery, rasterization, shaping, all that sort of stuff, which is really cool. SIMD to a certain extent, obviously, we just talked about that. But there's like so many interesting topics. It, it's been such an unexpectedly good project to learn a bunch of like concepts about computing that I didn't have before. My previous project that I would use like on every language that I felt taught me a lot was uh, basically building like regular regular expression engines was like... Yeah. That was my like hello world for basic projects. And a terminal is not going to become my hello world. But I thought <laughs> that building a regular expression engine like taught me so much stuff around like 
same thing, like base, really the most basic flexing, parsing, but not, you know, really the most basic stuff like that. But then now it's sort of like, wow, this project is like that, but not at like a core CS fundamentals level. It's more of like a real world systems level. So instead of learning about yeah, lexing, parsing, DFAs, NFA, stuff like that, you're learning about like GPUs and fonts and like these huge subcomponents of computers. And uh, I really didn't expect that going into it. So uh, it's been fun. But uh, I, and like you said, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if this got brought up actually, but even if I don't like I work on it once every couple of weeks, maybe to build a new feature, but I use the terminal every single day. And there's just so much satisfaction I get like eating breakfast and opening up my computer and being like, oh, cool. I like work in this thing <laughs> that I built in. Like I spend the next eight hours in this thing I built, which is really cool. Nice. Yeah, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, cool. thanks so much for joining me. This is this is really enjoyable. And uh I also got some some nice links to follow up on as well. So appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice meeting you as well. I've, I've actually I've, yeah, I've you too. known about Rock. I've seen your tweets come up. I don't follow you directly right now, but I've seen it pop you know, come up through. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, super interesting. I think I actually watched your talk at a handmade, I wasn't at a handmade, but I, I think I watched the recording. Um, yeah. Yeah. Handmade Seattle. Yeah. I talked about like the internals behind the scenes compiler stuff. So awesome. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, see you around. See ya.